Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano De Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. One of the things that we've learned over the past two years from our global research program into character education is this simple understanding. We teach who we are. Ollie Lovell teaches who he is. He has a whole engagement with life. He is a teacher. He is a software developer. He works with a faculty of education. He writes books. He's a math teacher and instructional coach. He seems to have something to do with badminton as well too. He's a senior researcher within the Crowder Centre and he is an absolute expert on the cognitive load theory in action. He's written a book about that. I'm excited to talk to him today. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor and their exciting new app, Voyage? Of course, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. Voyage is a purpose-driven way for students to plan their future, experience life and thrive. They'll map and evaluate their progress on their journey as they build their character and the healthy habits that support it. Mentors and peers can check in on them and provide reflection and feedback as their crew. Best of all, it's free. Search Voyage on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store or visit the link in the description to find out more. Life's an adventure. Let's go. Bill, I'm really super excited about our guest for Series 9 of the Game Changers podcast. But before we get to young Oliver, uh, Phil, how is Fitzroy treating you this evening? Oh, look, thank you for asking, Adriano. I know I, I can feel the care oozing out of you as we talk in, in the same way that I can feel moisture oozing out of the sky and onto the streets. Look, it's done a little bit to the product that sits in the moustaches of most of the people on the streets of Fitzroy. And all I can say is that it doesn't seem to have done anything to Ollie Lovell's moustache because he wouldn't have pointy bits at the end because he's way too sensible. I, I, the, the listeners can't see this, but I'm in awe of these two men in, uh, in, in the screen in front of me, one with the, the full beard and moustache and with and Oliver with with, uh, with his moustache. I think Movember's over, fellas. You can actually yeah. get rid and of it. All, you do and, all, that. and all you've got is a poxy man bun. <laughs> yes, that'll be going very soon. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. I'm really excited to have you here today, Oliver. Uh, thank you very much for being on, on our podcast. And I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our Game Changer guests. Tell us about your story how you've gotten to where you are today. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Adriano. Very excited to be on, on your podcast. On another podcast, I'm usually at the other, other side of the microphone, so it's exciting and a bit nerve-wracking, actually, to be on the other side. Um, we, how I got to where I got where I am today? Well, that's it's an interesting question because I feel like there's a few different answers to, like, where I am today. So in terms of getting into education, I, I'd always thought that I'd go into something like international development or something like that uh, when I was when I started uni in year 11 and 12 but in my second year of university I as a physics student um, I did relatively well in my first year and so they got me back 
in second year to run classes for the first year students, peer assisted study sessions. Some people might be familiar with this university program. And I just found that there was something about running a classroom that was really fulfilling and really engaging and fun for me. And then I thought back to what I'd done in school myself, and I'd actually been tutoring younger students the whole way through mm-hmm. to make pocket money. And that was something I'd loved as well. And so over the year two and year three of university of running um, these peer assisted study sessions, I thought maybe there's something in this education thing that's that I'm really drawn to. And at, at about the same time, I was running um, programs for youth groups like the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and Oz Green. Um, and Australian Student Environment Network. And that was all running workshops and things like that. And I was like, yeah, this facilitating stuff, this helping people learn stuff, I absolutely love it. And so sometime in third or fourth year, I thought, you know, I want to make the world a better place. I want to have a positive impact. Um, You know, a a wage is a helpful thing to have as well. Maybe I should think about teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after a bit of of travel, a bit more exploration, things like that, I came back to here, or I came here to Melbourne from Tasmania and I I started the teaching thing. And it's been great ever since. So that's, I guess, a bit of an answer to the first part of the question. In terms of where I've taken things since then, I can probably actually add something to the first part of the question as well. And that's that I've always been an interested learner myself. Like I've always had this kind of really obsessive, learning streak in me when I was 14 it was archery when I was 15 it was inline hockey then I got into music um and I sorry listeners I look behind the curtain here uh, we'll get on to extraneous cognitive load later but I've, I'm experiencing some extraneous cognitive load with the hand signals between <laughs> Phil and Adriano it's, it's distracting me from my answer <clears throat> but yeah I've always been um I'm looking forward to finding out what that that hand signal means later on um and maybe you it means I've got a great question for you Ollie when you finished <laughs> okay well, there you go <laughs> less extraneous load for me thanks for that clarification um yeah so I found that I've always just been obsessed and so when I turned my attention to education it was like getting meta-obsessed. I was getting obsessed in learning about the process of learning. And that's when I really felt like I'd hit the jackpot. And so from there, I mean, it's been it's been an obsession with that learning. But then as you become a teacher, you realise that all these plans and dreams you had about exactly how the classes would run and how all the students would learn in the way that you expected them to and all those kinds of things, they just kind of don't really happen. And that means that I had to start to open my mind and, you know, dare say, dare say my heart as well to what's actually happening for students in the classroom to try to, you know, try to get back to that learning, but to acknowledge and to take account of uh, the emotional needs of students at the same time. Ollie, what does good learning look like for you as a learner? What does your learning look like? For me personally? Yeah, for yeah. you. That's a great question, Phil, because it really drives to the heart of something I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, My answer, if you asked me this two years ago, I would have had a very, very clear answer. But I'm actually realising that I think a lot of what happened to me in school, a lot of what I did in school and later in university, actually gave me a bit of a warped view of what learning was. So I developed, I I was very good at playing the game of school and playing the game of university. I knew what marks I wanted. And so I would just go to past exams and past tests and things like that, work out what the teacher was gonna ask me, mm. study those things, and in a very short period of time, um, you know, do, do really well in the tests. I didn't learn 
very particularly deeply. Like if I go back to my physics course that and my, my economics, I, I studied a bit deeper in the economics course, but if I go back to my physics course and think about the content about quantum physics and things like that, that I did really well in, I really never understood that. So it, it's, it's an interesting question for me because I'm starting to learn that some of the, dare I say, robotic systems, some of the rote learning approaches that I had initially taken on are actually really bad habits for me. And they're things that I have to break. And I'm almost reinventing myself as a learner right now. Like right now, one of my learning projects is learning German. And I'm, I'm trying to work out how much of the old approaches, like the space repetition, the flashcards, I want to retain and how much of the more organic um, reading, speaking, um, watching TV stuff I want to, I want to take on. Um, but right now, if I were to take a kind of snapshot of what effective learning looks like, I guess, you know, I could go back to that classic word of flow. It's just when you feel like you're, you're in the zone with the learning things are progressing for you. You're feeling challenged, but not too challenged. Um, and, and also something I love about it is when there's a social element of it. So if I'm sharing it um, on a podcast and, you know, I'm vibing off it with my guests, we're coming to some realizations together and things like that. That's when it's really most rewarding for me. So I'm told by your boss, I've just been texting him just to say that we're talking with you right now. And I'm told that you're an interesting cat and that you're super smart. How is it? And you, talk, you, you talked a little bit earlier about opening up your heart. How is it that we as teachers can open up our hearts and share the passions that we're interested in to prompt other learners or students to do the same thing? Great question. And again, something that I'm wrestling with at the moment, right? Because there's so much messaging for teachers. I, I don't know about the I think we, we swim in slightly different worlds in the education space. I've spent a lot of time in the explicit instruction kind of Twitter sphere, and that's a lot of the messages that I get. Very, and very dangerous place to be, the Twitter sphere. <laughs> it is a On the Twitter sphere or, or the explicit instruction oh, space? Look, I'm, I'm, sure. I'm just going to stick with Twitter sphere at the moment. It's just a very dangerous place. It can be a dangerous place. But, yeah, so a lot of the people that I follow and a lot of messaging that I get is is not so much about the teacher. And I can't remember which of you has said it, said it before. Maybe it was for you in your introduction, Phil, you said, you know, we teach who we are. Mm -hmm. But it's not something that's addressed a lot in a lot of what I read about education. And so, again, for me, I think I probably started out, if I think of my own trajectory as a teacher, I started out being very authentic, being, being Ollie Lovell in the classroom. But then I'd say I went through a bit of a phase of thinking there was a right way for a teacher to be. Um, you know, very, very clear, very direct, very explicit, very regimented and things like that. And it's just now that I'm starting to come back to finding a balance between, between that, that structure that I really do believe within a, a traditional classroom setting, at, at least, is helpful for learning um, and that authentic me. Um, it was interesting because today I just had, I had new, my new classes, I had my new, new year eight classes today. I met them today and I had my new year 12 class. And so for me, the question was, how do I set expectations at the start of the year that tells the students or helps the students understand that in this classroom, there are going to be some structures and some routines around the way that we behave and, and conduct ourselves. But also Mr. Lovell is, um, 
here to support me. He understands me. He shares a little bit of himself. So for me, it's just about making a transition from having a bit of a face to being a bit more authentic. And what that mean, meant concretely today was me giving a bit, of a, a bit of a short speech to my year 12 students and saying, I've got a bit of a confession to make. And I actually use that phrase. I've got a bit of a confession to make. A lot of the maths teachers that you have will be really passionate about maths. I'm pretty capable with maths. I did a physics degree and things like that. I've taught this course for six years, but actually I'm not too crazy about maths. Um, and hopefully that's a bit uh, relief, or a bit of a relief to some of you, because I would imagine that some of you aren't that passionate about maths either. But what I think we can do this year and what I am much more interested in is the people that we come, that we become through doing this mathematics together. And so that, that idea about character is what I would really love for us to focus upon this year together. So, and that, and that, that is, is actually an idea that came to me, being authentic about that is an idea that came to me on year nine camp last week when I was being interrogated by a young, very intelligent, very switched on year nine student who is very disengaged in class and yeah. isn't the biggest fan of school, but has fantastic insights into the human psyche. And I was, I was getting real with him and I was telling him that some of the challenges that I've been having as a teacher um, navigating, you know, myself as Ollie Lovell and myself, Ollie Lovell, the teacher. And this is an idea when he pushed me and said, well, what are you going to change next year, sir? I said, um, maybe I'll try and be a bit more real with the students. And so that, that, that for me is an ongoing process. Phil, you've really hit the nail yeah. on the head with asking me that question. And, and that's I, I think an idea. I, just sitting here listening to the, to the interchange between both of you, it's, it's fascinating listening, Oliver, because I started off by asking, you know, how have you gotten to where you are today? And you've just kind of answered that in many ways, because what you're sharing with our listeners is, is an example of, of a, a graduate outcome that we speak about often at the School for Tomorrow, and that is continuous learner and unlearner. And, and when we are prepared to step into that, that space of uh, new learning or uncertainty, there's real struggle in that. Uh, but it's still intentional. And, but there's real struggle in that and there's a lot of discovery in that. And, and thank you for sharing with our audience that you as an educator have been on this learning continuum for quite some time. And I don't believe it's finished. Actually, I don't feel that you're the type of educator that will ever be finished, which is, which is power to you. I now want to talk about the people then you encounter and the people that you talk to on your show, uh, this highly successful education reading room podcast you know, in the top 1% of all educational podcasts in the world. Uh, you successfully pointed that out to me uh, recently. And I appreciate you doing that because we should be able to celebrate as educators the success of our conversations that we have with others and providing insights. What I really respect and value about what you do on that show is that you allow your listeners to step into their own space of their own agency and share so much of their own practice. I think our audience is interested in hearing from you a little insight about what motivated you then to start a podcast and perhaps share with them why you think a voice in education is really important. Why I started a podcast is basically because I really wanted to nerd out on teaching and learning and education more broadly. And I really like podcasts. I ride my bike a lot and it's a, you know, clean the house, whatever it might be. It's a really great Form. I think it's actually almost the best form of media for learning. It's just so accessible and, and so fantastic. Um, but when I looked around, I didn't find anything that really got into the nitty gritty 
um, as much as I wanted to get into. Um, and so I'd listen to these things that have tips and tricks, but I'd always say, have more questions like why and why does that work and what are the boundary conditions of that and what's the mechanism behind it and things like that. And so I, I just thought, you know, well, if it's not out there already um, and I'm kind of excited to do it, I, I may as well get started. And I was also lucky at the time to have some supportive people around me like Steve Dinham and Catherine Scott who, who, who had some good connections and said, you know, we'll, we'll come on the podcast, we'll get you started. That was really helpful. Um, and also initially it was actually a kind of a group podcast. So if people go back to the early episodes, they were actually run as events, like conversational events. And we got the educator in, uh, I and a few other graduate teachers between five and 12 of us would read the paper. And that was a social side of things as well, which was really great. Um, so yeah, that's why it started. Could you give me some yeah. clarification about the second so, part? So the second part of that, that question is your podcast has been hugely successful both here in Australia and across the globe with, with, uh, with, with a, you know, an audience that's quite substantial. And in many ways, it has empowered educators to challenge their own thinking, to challenge their own inquiry and to challenge their own practice. What's successful about your podcast is that you have uh, educators and thinkers from the entire spectrum of learning. It's not just kind of one narrow niche you know, uh, and so you're giving real voice to education and you're, and you're positioning it in a way where you're saying to people, let's bring real value to this dialogue, this conversation about pedagogy, this conversation about instruction, this conversation about self-determination and so on. Why do you think then it is important as educators, we're fellow educators, why do you think it's still important for us to continue to give others voice about education? Puts very simply because that's how we learn, right? When we when we just keep on doing the same stuff, when we live in echo chambers, um, when we repeat the same processes and over and over again, it's super boring, mm -hmm. and it doesn't help our students. And one thing that really confuses me is when I you know when I meet any passionate educator, no matter where they come from or the kind of the background they come from in terms of their pedagogy or anything like that. They're all, they're all passionate. They all care about kids, right? So it's really confusing to me why it is that they seem to, um, you know, throw mean words at each other and, and believe so strongly in their own views and things like that. So I, I just feel like education is so diverse and learners are so diverse. Though there's a lot of things that are the same about them in terms of mm. the, the cognitive architecture and things like that. But there is such diversity that there is space and there is importance for for every view to be heard and for me my learnings my, my teaching has not gone well when I've tried to stick too tightly to one specific approach mm -hmm. and and by building a toolbox for myself and hopefully helping other people to really build their toolboxes I think we empower teachers to be more rounded teachers and to help a broader range of students. Ollie, I love hearing what you're talking about there in terms of the development of your own craft and about the wrestling piece that you do uh, between this approach and that approach and trying this out and trying that out. And, and so I love hearing, hearing you talk about character earlier as well too. I mean, there's that, that whole character piece is, is the piece that has dominated my thinking for 30 years now. I was thinking about what is the character of a person? What is the purpose of a school? Is the purpose of a school the character of a person? If so, then it's the whole work of a school to develop that character and to support that person to gain voice agency and advocacy in what they do. I'm super passionate about that, as folks will know. As a result, it tends to infuse everything. 
And I tend to see all of that in there. And, you know, if we were talking to behavioral psychologists, you know, that, that they, would, they would start talking to me about my implicit biases. Okay, so I want to go to the cognitive load theory in action book, which is a very impressive achievement. It's a, it's a great book. It's a great read. I learned, I learned um, a bucket load from it. Can you share with our audience the basic science behind what you have learned about human memory and cognitive load theory? First and foremost, I see cognitive load theory as an antidote to the claim that students don't need to know anything these days because they can all look it up on Google, right? Because what cognitive load theory teaches us is that the side of our consciousness, the part of our, um, our cognitive architecture that we do the thinking with, the active thinking, um, the thing that the words that I'm speaking now is running through on the way to your ears is my working memory. And that working memory is has a limited capacity, right? I can only think of, you know, depending on whose research you, you, you follow, but let's say around seven or so things at a time, right? If I can only think of seven or so things at a time, but I want to solve problems that include more than seven factors, or I want to think about something that includes more than seven elements, we need some way around this. And the way around this is by storing information put differently, chunking and automating that information into our long-term memory. So the more students know, the easier it is for them to think at a higher level and think more complexly about issues. Uh, and therefore, cognitive load theory teaches us that knowledge is really, really important and a foundation for effective learning. How do you stop yourself from seeing that as the answer to everything in education? Because clearly, you, you, talk, you talk earlier about your toolkit. Sometimes I talk about a golf bag, you know, because uh, I, 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 like, I like a game of golf. And, and throughout my career, throughout my professional career, I've accumulated certain clubs and put them in my golf bag because I like using those clubs because I've had success with them in the past. I've been rewarded for my ability to, to use those clubs as opposed to other clubs. And so when I walk around the course, I find it difficult to pick up the three iron, because I can't hit the three iron for love nor money, but give me a sharpshooter five wood and I can smack a ball relatively well and hit the fairway most of the time. How is it that you stop yourself from seeing one theory which attracts you as the answer to everything? Sure. Well, I guess it's to extend your, your, your metaphor, Phil, um, you know, each, each club is only relevant for the part of the course that you're on or whether you are, in fact, on the course at all. So if I pick out my driver when I'm on the green, it's not going to be much help. Or if you pick up your, your five iron, which you love, and I'm sure it's great, I'm sure you hear very well, Phil. If you pick that up, <laughs> <on the> green, <laughs> if you pick that up on the green, it's not going to be much help. Right. And so we have to we have to always be thinking what's the context I'm in and what's the goal I'm trying to achieve or what are the goals my students are trying to achieve in this specific context. Now, you know, if if cognitive load theory is your five iron, I think there's a lot of things to be more specific and take it out of the world of metaphors. Um, there are a lot of things that get in the way of cognitive load theory being applicable at all in the classroom. Um, and one is you've got to make sure you're actually on the fair way to start with. And by that, I mean, cognitive load theory talks about how students' attention is allocated when they're actually choosing to allocate their attention to the lesson, 
right? If, however, and so when they're there, when they're watching, when they're listening, when they're focused, cognitive load theory is super helpful. And, you know, in the studies, that's always the case because you've usually got motivated students. They know they're in a study or you're dealing with university students. As soon as you take it into the classroom, we find that a lot of the students aren't actually at the golf course at all. They're somewhere completely different. <laughs> and, and the first thing we need to do is we need to get them to the golf course or help them construct their own golf course or, or some other interesting like that, like that year nine student you had on camp. Exactly, exactly. Or maybe not meet them at the golf course, maybe meet yeah. them somewhere else uh, other than the golf course because they don't like golf. Yes, maybe, the maybe, bad, like, maybe the badminton course. Maybe the badminton court. Uh, could be anywhere, right? But you've got to meet them where they are um, if you want them to come to the golf course or accept that they're not going to come to the golf course and meet them where they are anywhere and, and go on a different kind of learning journey. So I want to explore this a little bit further with you. You had a you had a guest uh, on your podcast, Guy Glaxton, uh, you know, a, a very noted uh, thinker in 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 the space of education. He recently posted a a, a blog titled uh, "Cognitive Load Theory: Just Brain Gym for Traditionalists" with a question mark. I'm I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. It's uh, caused a lot of uh, uh, conversation on Twitter, particularly by those who swear that there's only one club to be used in that bag. Hang on, hang on a second. You're talking about Twitter. You're just talking about people who swear. <laughs> well, it's one in the same, really. Anyway, I'll just, I'm going to read a piece to you that, that he stated in that particular blog, exactly. uh, and, and then I want to unpack that a little bit with you. He stated that uh, cognitive load theory offers a simple story purportedly based on incontestable cognitive science about why students find learning difficult and how to respond that many in the teaching profession have found hard to resist. It seems authoritative, but it is in fact seductive and misleading. He then goes on to suggest that there are eight things wrong with, with cognitive load theory. Not seven, uh, but eight. But not seven, but eight. <laughs> um, and, and it's interesting. When I read that, I thought to myself, hmm, you know, I kind of believe that these kind these kind of conversations are actually really good because ultimately it impacts on our power of practice and, and, and um, and it could be seen as a healthy sign of an educational ecosystem when we have these debates. My question, though, is this. Why is there always conversations that pit cognitive load theory or direct instruction or explicit instruction, whatever you want to call that, versus inquiry-based learning methodologies? Why isn't it an and an and conversation? Why is it an either or or argument? I can think of three reasons and I'll try to remember them while I answer this question. I might lose one along the way because sure. of, of my working memory. I think one is the inherent um, tribalism of humans. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to feel a sense of belonging, right? And if we find a tribe where we feel like we belong, I think sometimes it can be seductive to try to stay in that tribe, right? Or to feel, to feel a sense of belonging in that tribe. That's one way. That's one reason. I think another reason is... Um, pure marketing right mm -hmm. so we know that extreme views get more get more clicks and stuff like that so if you're if one of your goals is to get more clicks or get more views or get more notoriety taking an extreme position can be helpful um, and the third one of the third reasons is that i think a lot of people have just been at the outset exposed to an ineffective a practice used ineffectively mm -hmm. or a practice in the incorrect context so if I've started with inquiry, 
but the context I was in wasn't suited to that inquiry. And I have a really negative experience with that. That can cause me to swing to the other fence and say, I've tried that, didn't work, got to try this other approach. Conversely, if I come into a, a, a scenario where we're using explicit direct instruction, but it's not actually the time and place for that, the students aren't in a position of that, or I don't, I, I kind of don't actually know what it is and I think I'm doing it but I'm doing some things fundamentally wrong I could have a really negative experience with that thing which I think is explicit direct instruction and therefore swing to the other fence right so context tribalism wanting to feel belonging and marking I think are some of some of the key reasons yeah I, I really like uh, what you're sharing with our with our audience in terms of that response just then because often educators in my experience are hardwired a particular way uh, and and as you rightfully said, when they when they are introduced to something that is foreign to them and they attempt to do it, they're still at a very novice level. So when we're at a novice level, the chances are that we are, aren't going to get all the elements right or it's not going to work the first time or bits of it are going to work. Uh, and so then we go, we, we kind of abandon it really quickly when, when we don't seem to grasp it. You know, we, we, we push it aside and we, we retreat back to what's known and comfortable, what's familiar. And, and we are in a system, though, that, that supports a more of an explicit uh, instruction type philosophy because the system itself values certain things around standardization uh, that might benefit from that particular approach to mastery of knowledge and skill. I was also interested in another recent interview that you did with Dr. Naomi Fisher, clinical psychologist. Uh, fantastic conversation, by the way. Real credit to you, the way in which uh, you, you engage with Naomi and what an engaging person she is as well. Uh, uh, and you discussed the science of self-directed learning. Fisher spoke of the need to stop making competition the backbone of our educational system and instead allow each child to learn what is most important to them without comparisons with others. And that young children are all self-directed learners. This is what she was suggesting in that conversation, often to an extent that even surprises their own parents, yeah? That they take charge of the process from a very early age and, and they really step into that kind of agency piece and that they learn the things that they need to know in order to live the life they want right now in that moment of time. Interestingly, though, many schools and systems turn this on its head and they kind of remove learning from that context kind of a paradigm that something like a project-based learning would strongly advocate for or even let's go to the, the extremes of Hudagoji, right? What did you personally learn about how children can take control of their own learning from your conversation with Dr. Naomi Fisher? There are a lot of assumptions mm -hmm. that we have about learning that come from the context in which most of us have grown up. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are teachers, the context in which we teach, right? They are things that need to be unpacked if we are to truly open ourselves up to new innovative i kind of don't like that word because it's mm -hmm. just this is new but new and you know potentially more fruitful ways of learning so one of the main things that i took from naomi is simply that there are many more assumptions that i have about learning that may not be the case that i hold simply as a result of being growing up in a system where there's a dominant paradigm for how education takes place so that's one thing. And another thing that really st struck out um, 
or stuck out to me from what Novi was talking was one of the questions I asked, so we were talking about the process of de-schooling, which is where usually students need some time to decompress if they've been in a really institutionalized setting for a long time. And, you know, say a 15 year old, they're feeling super depressed about school. Their parents finally take them out or give me opportunity to, mm -hmm. to leave. Then they need to do this de-schooling thing, right? And that often looks like sitting on the couch, playing computer games all day long, potentially for a few months and things like that. And, but often out of that, young people emerge. This is according to Naomi. Obviously, I haven't got first-hand experience with it myself, but according to Naomi, out of that, young people often emerge with a new lease on life, a new passion for learning, and they're actually able to really accelerate from there. The question I had for, for Naomi was, but what happens if they, they just choose to keep on playing computer games? You know, some kids might just play computer games and they might never learn anything. Mm. And Naomi's response to that was, young people never don't learn anything. Mm -hmm. They are always learning something. It just might not be what us as adults or us as teachers think it's important for them to learn. So I think that, that fundamentally that's an assumption that sits at the heart of education, which is like we as educators, we as an education system know what it is that young people should know and therefore we measure their success as learners against that yardstick which we have set but the main one of the key ideas from Naomi that I took away was there is value to questioning that assumption yeah I, I, I that's a really powerful takeaway uh when Phil and I facilitate our flourishing futures curriculum design workshops across the country one of the first things that we say to everyone in that room is uh never assume we don't have any assumptions about what they're bringing to the table apart from a lived experience of expertise uh, and, 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 and we want to tap into that expertise in the room because that's there's real value in that. But we, we, we say to them, never go into a room and make assumptions about each of the learners in your class because the moment we do that, we bring a prejudice into every one of our exchanges with them, even if it's an unconscious bias. And that's what we want to, we, we can't do that because we have to give them every single opportunity to step into their own agency and, and discover whatever their inherent possibility is on this, this learning continuum, this journey that you've so beautifully articulated that, and shared with our audience about your own. My question to you before Phil wants to jump in here, because I know he does. Um, my question to you is, you're not only a math teacher at, at Brighton Grammar School in, in Melbourne, Australia, you are an instructional coach of the teaching staff. How has that continued to evolve in its practice now that you as an educator understand the inherent value of something like cognitive load theory, but also have a deep appreciation that's one of the things in my toolkit. How does that then impact the way in which you are an effective instructional coach in practice? A doctor's ability to diagnose uh, an issue to take a deficit approach, an issue with a person, or a life's coach ability, life coach's ability to um, use the word diagnose again or identify a most useful solution, is dependent upon the for the doctor the collection of things or illnesses or uh, foibles that they know people might have, uh, and for a life coach, it's. The potential solutions that they might be aware of, right? You can't actually see something. You can't actually perceive something unless you're aware of its existence in the first place. So for me, simply we've used the, the, the golf bag metaphor. We've used the toolbox metaphor. The more tools I have, 
the more fine-grained ability I have to see and diagnose more accurately what's happening in the classroom and the more fine-grained ability I have to, to nudge teachers or to support teachers or sometimes also to suggest or direct teachers uh, into avenues or strategies or practices that are more likely to be successful for them. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And, uh, uh, you know, there's such power in not the observation that you're making and sharing. And central to all that, of course, is a deep consciousness of the other from a relational point of view that, that you so eloquently spoke about just then. Talking about doctors, I'm throwing to the doctor for the next question. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm interested in the philanthropic side, I want to move away from the conversation about uh, cognitive load theory and all of that sort of stuff. I think we've explored that really, really well. And I've enjoyed listening to the story of your own journey being interwoven um, in, the, in, the, in the story of the learners and, uh, and the colleagues around you. I'm interested in the social venture space for you, the social entrepreneurship space for you. When did that start? Yeah, interesting question. I guess there's, there's kind of two... There's kind of two sides to my philanthropy. One is like a passive side and one is an active side. So um, the passive side started when I read Peter Singer's book, The Life You Can Save, which I would recommend everyone to read. And this, that book starts with a really, really interesting thought experiment. Thought experiment goes as follows. Imagine you're walking through a park on the way to work and you see a child clearly struggling, probably drowning in, in a shallow pond. You know, quick question, do you help them? Phil, do you help them? Yes. You do. But, Phil, you actually, have either of you heard this thought experiment before? No, carry it's on. Fr- it's new and fresh. All right, we'll keep going. But, Phil, so you would help, right? But actually, you're wearing a really nice new pair of shoes that you bought, Phil. Nah, who they cares? Cost, There's always cost, another pair of shoes, mate. Well, yeah, but they cost a couple of hundred bucks. Are you, it's definitely going to ruin these shoes. There's a bit of a oh, money pond. A couple of hundred bucks for Phil, that'll be a cheap pair of shoes then. Sorry, Oliver. Come on. <laughs> no, 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 your audience. I thought as an instructional case, that was the first thing you did. So I didn't, I didn't want to ask on air what your most expensive pair of shoes was. <laughs> you don't, you don't but, want to know, mate. You don't want to know. Let's, <laughs> all right, let's say more, more than a couple of hundred yeah. bucks. It's going to ruin them. Are you still going to go in, Phil? Yeah, of course. It's a life. Exactly. It's a life. Exactly. And, and who, would, who would give a different answer? The next day you're walking to, 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 to work, to school, to, to do your podcast again. You've bought a new pair of shoes. You had to replace them. They're even nicer than last time, maybe even a bit more expensive. And again, you see a child drowning in this pond. What do you do today, Phil? I'll probably take my shoes off and then dive into the pond. There's no time. And you know, <laughs> you just, you just dive straight into the pond. Of course you that's do. Right, that's and right. And then you just get irritated afterwards. And, but, but, you know, that's a, that's a modicum of irritation. These are the things that we do. Exactly, exactly. So, and as the thought experiment continues, right, this happens every day. And at what point do we go, ah, you know, I've saved 20 lives now. It's cost me 200 bucks each time. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I can keep this up. I don't know if it's worth it. The, the, the question that Singer asks of us is, at what point should we trade our own uh, money our own time, our own things that, like you've said there, Phil, really don't matter that much to us all. Who says you need a $2,000 pair of shoes anyway, Phil, let's be honest. Um, So at what point do we draw that line and say, well, actually, I'm happy to give a bit away. So what Singer does is he encourages us all to think, you know, what can I actually give up to support other people? And he suggests using websites like GiveWell, which are charity um, evaluators and work out 
you know, exactly how much, how much it costs to save a life and to make a commitment or a pledge to give away a certain percentage of your income per year, uh, an amount that's challenging for you, but that is also going to have a, a large impact. So when I read that book in 2013, 2014, I made a pledge to give away 10% of my income to extreme poverty. I've mainly been doing that um, to support uh, malaria nets uh, right around the world. Um, and that's that's the passive side. So I know that no matter what happens, and I actually I do it the first first of each season. So I did it yesterday. I calculated how much I have to give away. It hurts. It hurts a bit every time, like taking off an expensive pair of shoes um, and throwing them in the bin. It hurts every time, but I know that that's just a thing. That no matter what happens, um, that's a commitment that I yeah, but yeah, but yeah, okay. So that's that's I get that. Yeah, that's the empiricist, and that's the I read a book, I saw a solution, it worked for me. I've employed the solution and going into it in exquisite detail. Is that where your social conscience came from? Did you not have a social conscience before you read Peter Singer? That's a good question. So, so that's yeah. So that's the passive side, and yeah. then there's also the active side, which is the social venture partners side. Sure, but we we can come to that. We don't we don't we don't. No, no, we'll go to that. We'll go to that in a moment because um, it's it's a really interesting question. Like, where does the motivation for anything come from? Right. Um, I don't know. I'd like to say, actually, there is something I realized when I was in year 11 or 12. Thanks for asking this question, Phil, because you got me thinking about things. Um, when I was in year 11 and 12, I looked at the people around me, right? I looked at the jocks and I saw them pursuing um, sports and things like that. And I thought, that looks good. You're, you seem to be having fun. And they did seem like they're having a lot of fun. I looked at the musos. I was, I was probably a muso back then. And I said, you know, you guys are pursuing this. You're having a lot of fun. That's great. And then I looked at the people who were doing trying to do good for the world, right? We had a kind of an amnesty group at school and a few other charity groups. And I thought, and I looked at them, I thought they're having a lot of fun. But as I looked at them, all these different groups, I thought, well, all these people are having fun, but some of them are actually also helping other people to have fun and help other people to have better lives as well. And I realized that I could just choose, I could just make the choice to try to surround myself with people who try to do good stuff and I could have just as much fun as if I surrounded myself with any other group of people, but it would also have this additional benefit of having a positive impact. So if I could do that, why wouldn't I do that? So I, I think I think I'm actually more of a take more of the empiricist. I, I'm I'm not sure if it is this like um, yeah burning heart or or deep seated kind of a thing. It's just kind of like a pragmatic. I can do this. It's not going to cost me that much. It's probably going to give me some good feelings along the way, um, but it's also going to have some, a lot of positive externality. So why wouldn't I? Yeah, it's a very it's a very rationalist approach. So here's my question: There's no school in the world that te- te- well, there's almost no school in the world that teaches self centeredness. We teach selflessness because that's a normal and natural part of human development. And what you've just described there is a it's it's a character it's a it's a characterful moment. It's a, it's it's that moment when you make what you know, the, 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 the Piaget big step forward and up kind of thing. Uh, you know, you make a breakthrough in your life where you realise that a moment of insight can lead to a pattern of behaviour that creates a sense of purpose and fulfilment that takes you from random acts of kindness to a vocation. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about what we can be doing in schools to help create more moments like that happen mm-hmm. in, more li- in, in more lives of young Olivers and young Adrianos and young Phils and Philippas and, and all those in between. Well, first I wanted to come back to a quick comment you made there, Phil, about um, we often don't teach self-centeredness. And I think it's quite interesting because I, th- I think to be a happy and contributing human, you actually need to strike a, a healthy balance between self-centeredness and selflessness. And I think, you know, people go, 
people get in trouble if they're way too self-centered but people also get in a lot of trouble and i was actually teaching talking to a teacher today who was going down this road getting into a lot of trouble when they're too selfless and they give too much and they end up getting burnt out and in a lot of trouble so so i think teaching um selflessness is great um but also sometimes depending on who people are we need to support that self well it's the delphic wisdom it's, it's the delphic wisdom isn't it it's it's everything in moderation and you know and know yourself you know 100%. so you know Hundred percent. So, in terms so what, of what, to, can, to what can what can schools be doing to teach um, vocation? Vocation is really what I want to get at. But what what can we be doing to teach vocation and purpose that, yeah. that is other centered? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think honestly, I think it's just experiences. Just giving young people the opportunity to have experiences where they engage with uh, people, with the community, whether that may be in a philanthropic way, environmental way, a project way, an economic way, whatever, and to actually see the see the impacts of what they can do and to broaden their horizons um, and give them, yeah, just a, a broader view of, of what can be done and what it can feel like to do other things other than what we usually do in the classrooms. All right, and quickly tell us about the Social Venture, the active thing, because you really want to do that. Yeah, so Social Venture Partners Melbourne is just a great organisation here in Melbourne, um, and we're, we're essentially a not-for-profit incubator. So, you know, you have like startup school and things like that. They're like incubators for startups. Startups come in and they get business advice. They sometimes get some funding. They get coaching and things like that. Social Venture Partners is that, except for not-for-profits. So if there's budding young uh, not-for-profits developing or even ones that have been around for a while. I'm working with one at the moment. It's been around for, for 20 years working in the west of Melbourne. Um, we try to, they come to us and they say, we want a bit of help with strategy or or with finance or whatever it might be, fundraising. Uh, and we've got a really um, broad group of people who have a broad set of skills and that we can allocate to those not-for-profits to help out. So yeah, if you're if you're out there running a not-for-profit and you, you want a bit more guidance or help, um, social venture partner Melbourne is great. Or if you're on the other side of the fence and you feel like you'd like to give back and you have some skills um, or some some finances that you'd be happy to contribute, um, you can also get in touch and become a partner. Awesome shoes, perhaps, Phil. You're done. <laughs> yeah, you're I done. am done. Hey, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you and chatting, Ollie. It's um, it's lovely of you to share your journey and to and to do that with such frankness and candor. Good luck with the work that you're doing at the chalk face as a researcher and through your broader life as a podcaster, as a voyager. May the road rise to meet you and the wind be ever at your back. There we go. Oh, thanks, Phil. And thanks, Adriana. It's been super fun. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.